Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. This is the day that the Lord has made. Now, why did I ask you that? Why do we ask that question or say that to one another at the beginning of our worship services? The passage that we're studying this morning is central to answering that question. And I think the question is processed this way through that statement. Is there any special reason for saying that on this day as opposed to tomorrow or the day after that? Is there anything special about Sunday that would make that statement have extra meaning? Certainly none of us are going to deny that all the days that have ever existed are made by the Lord and are a gift to us, right? They're all a blessing. They're all attended with God's promises, there's not a square inch of time that does not have the, the promise of Jesus extended to us. But is there anything distinct or unique? Are there any promises or blessings that are extended to us as believers on this day especially? That is the question that comes from our text this morning. Now, so we're going to be talking about the Sabbath, because that's the obvious thing to talk about from the first verses of chapter 2 of Genesis. And as we get into it, I'm going to issue a couple of disclaimers. Number one, this is the setup for a follow-up next week. I had a bit of a crisis this morning as I was trying to imagine how on earth I was going to try to get all this in into one sermon Better men could do it, I'm sure, but not me. And so Pastor Bailey and Pastor Minsel um, granted me graciously the opportunity to continue this next week. So this is the setup, and the setup's going to be a bit more tedious than the payoff, okay? So you just have to bear with me in that work. And I think that the reason that the setup is necessary today is because the Sabbath simply cannot be assumed anymore. We live in a day and age when Sabbath keeping is just not on anybody's radar. Hardly even Christians' radar, really. Not to any degree like our forefathers would have understood and kept. Even our forefathers who were like deists and didn't have sincere Christian faith, had a deeper understanding of and honor for, at least externally, for the day of the Lord, the Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath, than most Christians today have. And so I feel the need to, because of all the pressures that are on us today as living among those and being part of a society and a culture that have lost an understanding and appreciation for the Sabbath, and because of the own, our own appetites that cause us 
to want to find excuses and reasons to avoid talking about and facing the implications of passages like this for our lives. The need to carefully go through and try as best as I can this Sunday to close off the exits so that we wind up at the end where God has us to live and that we have got there with understanding and we know what God requires of us and we've thought carefully about how to apply this law to us today. A couple more disclaimers. There are different positions about this in our church. You should just know that. If you didn't know that, now you do. Just as there are different positions about a number of significant things, like baptism, for instance. We had an infant baptism here this morning. That is something about half of us, that maybe more than half of us, think is wrong. But we love one another, and we are willing to be taught and instructed by one another in our disagreement. I might have a different conviction about these things than you. I might have a different conviction about these things than another pastor of our church. I'm the guy you're listening to today. I'm going to trust God for him to use what I have to say to challenge you, to guide you into all truth, okay? But know that I know that you know there are different positions taken here. And secondly, there are different positions and understandings of the Lord's Day, of the Christian Sabbath, or of the Sabbath in general, that were held during the Reformation. So a part of Reformation history, even back in the days when people generally appreciated and honored and kept the Sabbath holy, to a greater degree than today, there were different views taken, different reasons for that, different, different gradations, different standards. There's a liberal side and a, and a conservative side. Now, the thing that you wouldn't understand being alive today is that the liberal side looks, uh, looks incredibly conservative to us, okay? Incredibly conservative to our sensibilities today. Even the most liberal positions of our, of our betters, of our forefathers, on this doctrine of the Sabbath, would look an awful lot like Sabbatarianism, that dreaded word. So I find myself, the, 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 the conservative side, the, conser- the con- most conservative expression I know, really, among those who are trustworthy, is the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is the doctrinal standard of our church. But it is also the, one of the parts of that confession that is most often objected to or taken an exception from among those men who are today being ordained for ministry. So even for most Presbyterians who are Westminster confessional subscribers, confession subscribers, that part or at least part of that doctrine, is accepted to almost universally in the church today. I find myself, just for, in the interest of full disclosure, somewhere between, I feel, the conservative side and the liberal side of the historical holding to the Sabbath. Okay? With that in mind... Let's go to now to God's word.
Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Would you all stand as we read it? I feel that standing, particularly at hard passages of Scripture, the ones we want to chafe against most, is a good discipline. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. By the seventh day God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. In our study of Genesis 1, which was, is now complete, we've, we've uncovered or seen and discerned a certain creative pattern to God's work. He first creates or makes something, and then he divides it from other things, sets it apart from something. And on day one, he made light, and he separated it or divided it from the darkness. He broke it into two. He, on the day two, he makes heaven, the heavenly expanse, or what the King James calls the firmament, and he separates it from the earth by an atmosphere. That's the best I can make sense of that passage. He makes the heavens, and he separates it from the earth. Day three, he makes seas. He gathers all the waters that are covering the earth into, into certain areas of their own, and thereby divides the seas from the land. On day four, he makes the sun, the moon, and the stars and puts them in their courses and on their tracks, and he divides time thereby into days. Days have already been happening, but God makes it more visible, more evident what a day is by putting them in their courses. On day five, he makes seas and skies to teem with life, and he divides those that that new life into classes and habitats. On day six, he makes a whole lot. He makes the land to bring forth animals and creeping things and cattle, and he separates them by kind. And he also makes man, and he separates man into two sexes, male and female. And he also separates man from all the rest of creation by dignifying him, gifting him with the image of God. Now, we have not liked, we've seen how much we and our society do not like the distinctions God makes. God loves making them, but we, in our sin and our pride and our rebellion, hate them. We resist them, especially today. God calls them all good, though, and he takes pleasure and delight in them. Now, the reason I said all that, that's by way of review, the reason I said that is because on day seven, we see this creative pattern continuing. I know it says that God finished and completed all his work, and he did, it's true, but in his rest, he is actually creating something. First of all, what is he, what's he creating immediately? First of all, he's creating the seventh day. All the other days have been defined, have been created almost, as it were, by his activity. And now the seventh day is created by his cessation of that activity. 
It's the very definition of this seventh day is his rest. And by the, notice that there's not a day eight that comes after in the sequence, is there? There's, there's days one through six, and then day seven, which is different than the other six, and then there's no day eight. So God doesn't get up Monday morning or Sunday morning for him at that time and get back to work of creating. No, he's done. He has made the earth to be, in a sense, self-sufficient. It is complete, at least, and it doesn't need any more. He's pronounced it very good, um, as if it is now done. I'm done. And he has entered into a rest from creation that is perpetual, and it just goes on. There's no day eight, as it were. God is, even now, in that rest, having ceased from his work of original creation. Why did God create the day? Well, in part, to create the week. Did you know that the week is not an invention of man? All the commentators, or the modern commentators on this passage, are just falling all over themselves to consider where on earth Moses might have come up with this idea of seven days of a week. And the reason that I think that they're considering this is because seven has no, makes no sense. You can't divide the phases of the moon into sevens. You can't divide much of anything, it turns out, into periods of seven days. So why, why would God make this thing called a week? It's evident there, right? There's seven days. He made the week. We know that Moses knows what happened before the Babylonians ever existed, for instance. That's what all the commentators are saying. Maybe Moses got it from the Babylonians, who had a seven-day week. But you know what's unique about the Babylonian seven-day week? Once they get off cycle from the moon and want to get back on cycle, they have an eight or a nine or a ten-day week to make it work out again. Now, what do we learn from that? We learn that God intends by his making a week to establish a pattern for us to follow, to order our lives by, so that our lives are not conformed to the worship of the moon or to any part of his creation, but only to some seemingly arbitrary thing that comes from him. Does that make sense to you? God wills that our lives be conformed to him. We bear his image in this creation. The number seven is well understood. It symbolically expresses the, the perfection of God. It's a number he seems to be very pleased with when he wants to talk about perfections. So it expresses his holiness, his perfections in some way. But I think he wants to define our lives on a very fundamental level, on how we order our time, how we number our days, according to him and not to anything that he has put beneath our feet, like the sun and the moon and the stars. Did you know that you're above them in the order of creation? 
God has established that and proclaimed it clearly. Psalm 8 says, Well, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man? You have made him just a little lower the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and splendor, and you have put all things beneath his feet, and you've made him to rule. Our lives are not to be subservient or conformed in any way to things that God has put beneath us. We are to be called upward to our creator and conform our, the patterns of our lives after him. So what God creates on, the, on this seventh day, the seventh day, and by creating it, he creates the weak. But he also divides that seventh day from the other six days, doesn't he? He makes it special. He makes it special first by resting and then by blessing and sanctifying the day. What do we learn from God resting on that day? Well, why did God rest? Why did God rest on the seventh day? Is it because God was tired? Don't you know, says the prophet Isaiah, haven't you heard The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. He does not need rest. The psalmist says, He who watches over Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. God is not in need of this day of rest for any benefit to him. So why on earth would he do it? Why six days of work and a seventh of rest. It, you have to understand, God being infinite and all-powerful, this is completely arbitrary, except that, or it's meaningless, except that we understand he means it for us. He means to teach us and instruct us in his way, and once, as I said, to conform us after his image and likeness. Why is he resting? Well, he's resting for us. He's resting to set an example for us to follow. We rest on the seventh day or the eighth day or the first day of the week. We'll get to that hopefully by the end of the sermon or at least the setup for that. We rest because God rests. God does not rest for himself. He rested to set an example for us. God does not get tired, but he does know that you and I do. And very kindly has provided for us the solution. As I, as I acknowledged in our prayers today, he, he knows exactly what we need. He knows our frame. He considers us that we are but dust. And he gives us the day for rest. But what kind of example of resting does God set? Is it the kind of idleness that you and I imagine and dream of for our weekend, the kind of couch potato rest that we all wish we had more of and feel awful when we get it? Is that what God's rest is like? I don't think it's like that at all. I think God's rest here is very active. It is merely the setting aside of one kind of work so that he could give himself to another. What is the work that he set aside? Well, that's obvious. 
He set aside the work of creation, and he has never returned to it. He's not made fundamentally more kinds of animals. He has made them to reproduce and to change and adapt and in a most wonderful way. And so there's been great variation and an increase of numbers and, and types or varieties or species or whatever you call them. But fundamentally, he's not made more. He's not had to. It's all been there. The text says that the heavens and the earth were completed, and so God's rest is the setting aside, at least, of the work of creation. But it's not idleness. He's exchanging that work for another work. What is it? What is the work that God is giving himself to on day seven and has continued to give himself to in his eternal day seven ever since? Well, it's the work of upholding the things that he has made, the work of providence, the work of caring for and nourishing and ordering this world. It says in Colossians 1, that in him, in Jesus Christ, who was there at the beginning, in him all things hold together. He is right now holding together and has been from the seventh day all that he has made. And we know, Paul says in Romans, we know that God causes all things to work together for our good. He is upholding the world and caring for the things he has made with his providence. So it's not idleness that God is doing. It's the, it's the putting aside of one kind of labor, taking up another kind. Number two, it's not idleness, but rather an active enjoyment of and communion with the man, his creature. We know that God walked in the garden in the cool of the day and had fellowship and communion with his creature, Adam. It says in Exodus, Moses writing 2,000 years after this event, reflecting on what God did on that day, he says that God finished all his work and was refreshed. God was refreshed in it. He, he contemplated it. He enjoyed it. He communed with man, had fellowship with him, and was refreshed in his rest. So it's not, it's, it's, it is an active He's, he is taking enjoyment and refreshment from his creation. It's active. And he calls us to conform ourselves to him in our own resting. We are to set aside because of this, because of God's example and pattern, we are to set aside our labors so that we may actively pursue fellowship and communion with him in an unhindered way. Surely we have fellowship and communion with God through Jesus anywhere, anytime we are. There's no doubt about that. But he has given us a day where we intentionally set aside our normal work so that we may commune with him. John Calvin calls the, the, the Sabbath or the Lord's Day a tower that we, we ascend for the day and we get perspective on, on the world, on our life. 
We remember who we are, what God has made us to do. We get that perspective, and we come back down, carrying it with us, and it informs our week, our life. That's what the Sabbath is given for, so that we can actively ascend the tower to contemplate God, to fellowship with Him, to commune with Him, to remember who we are in Christ, so that we can come back down again and fulfill our calling in this world as his image bearers. So that's what God shows us in his rest. What does he show us in his blessing and sanctifying the day? Well, God promised a special blessing to mankind Every seventh day. That's what I believe it means. God does not bless things for himself. Again, just like he doesn't need to rest, God does not need more blessing. He is blessedness. We sing this hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. He is the fount of every blessing. The fount does not water itself. It is water itself. God is blessedness personified. There is nothing lacking in his blessedness. He blesses something for somebody else. So when we see God blessing something, this isn't the first time we see him blessing in in Genesis, but it is the first time we see him sanctifying something. This is the first sanctified holy thing. That's what sanctified means, set apart for a holy use. He sanctified the day for a holy use. Again, God does not need to sanctify something in order to increase or aid his own sanctification. God has all the holiness he needs. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. He does not need to be filled or sanctified or made more holy. He is holiness. So when we see him sanctifying and blessing something, he's, we have to understand or we are simply contradicting the world <laughs> and God that he is doing this for us, to teach and instruct us, to bless us and to set us apart by helping us or by giving us a day in which to attend to our relationship with him in an unhindered way. Now, admittedly, this is more implicit in this passage than it is explicit. I'll freely admit that. The word Sabbath is not in the passage. Man is not in the passage. Nothing like the explicit command for us to set aside one day in seven and to put aside our our, our work so that we can rest and keep this day holy is mentioned. There's none of that explicitly put. So it's more implicit. But here's what Jonathan Edwards said, and it's been very helpful to me. When he was preaching on, these, on, on the Sabbath, he said that if, if we weren't capable of learning by implication, then God couldn't hold us to in the implied matter of Scripture. If we weren't capable of reasoning by implication, then God could not hold us accountable for it. But, quote, 
if God deals with us agreeably to our natures and in a way suitable to our capacities, it is enough. If God discovers or reveals his mind in any way whatsoever, provided it be according to our faculties, to our reason, to our abilities, we are obliged to obedience. And God may expect our notice and observance of his revelation in the same manner as if he had revealed it in express terms. So if it's here by implication, which I believe it is, and I've tried to convince you of, that we should set aside one day in seven and keep it holy by removing from it as much as we can. I, I say that because people, we live in Sabbath no man's land. <laughs> And our whole lives are entangled in this economy that is based on godlessness. And extricating ourselves from it is not clean and easy and nice and pretty and everything's rosy and it's just not hardly possible. But if we're going to work towards it, we need to understand what God requires so that we can inch our way in that direction with all of our might. What was I saying that got me on that? I don't recall. If it's there by implication, then what does Edwards say? And it's nice to hide behind Jonathan Edwards, let me tell you. If it's there by implication, according to Edwards, it's there by express command. And we are obligated to obey it. So this is a creation ordinance. Let's consider what that means. That means it's, it was created before the fall. And that means it was created before the fall like marriage was. And like work was. And if those things continue after the fall and aren't done away with, then why would the Sabbath suddenly be discontinued after the fall? Well, nobody's going to argue that it does, because Moses. We see that, that Moses and the Mosaic law has the Sabbath at the center of it. It's a very important thing. What we are, or many of us want to, and some of us do argue, is that it is done away with in a significant degree, or so relaxed that it's hardly the same thing anymore now that we're under the terms of the gospel. But if marriage and work continue under the terms of the gospel, why not the Sabbath? They're all three created together. It's reasonable to expect that they stand or fall together. Unless there's some obvious reason that God says, no, the Sabbath's unique and it's done away, and I didn't mean that in the same way I meant marriage and work, which I can't find in Scripture, then we need to assume that it is continued just as marriage and work are continued. Now, listen, marriage and work are fallen and corrupted in the fall, goes without saying, and they need to be the, the, God's commands need to be restated and because our faculties, our capacities, our inclinations are now very contrary to God. He has to work hard and bend very low to us 
to restore to us our understanding of his ways? Yes. They have to be redeemed and remade and, 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 and filled with power from on high in order to be obeyed. Yes. But they stand or they fall together as a set, these ordinances of creation. Sabbath is one of them. Now, if you've followed along and if you've bought into that, I saw some heads nodding, and that's encouraging. But if you've bought into that, then you've bought into it. That's it. I don't have to go further, except that I do. (laughs) Because there are very sophisticated ways of getting around the Sabbath still. And they're being advocated today, and you're going to come across them, and you're going to want to come across them because that's the inclination of your heart, to get away from anything that you feel is restrictive from God and inconvenient and that you don't like and don't want. So the, the next thing that we have to talk about is that it's an ordin- yeah, on the one hand, it's an ordinance of creation. It stands or falls with marriage and work, and marriage and work continue... Okay, it's one of God's Ten Commandments, the moral law. Now, what sets that part of God's law apart from the other parts of God's law? Because there was a whole bunch of law given at Mount Sinai. Law after law, after ordinance, after statute, after instruction given to Moses at Sinai. What makes the Ten Commandments unique? I, typically, they're called God's moral law, which means that they're universals, and that they don't go away, they don't go out of fashion, they continue forever and ever, amen. They are an expression of God's holy character and are there for us to conform ourselves or to know how to conform ourselves to him, what his standard of measurement is when he evaluates us, his holiness, his moral law. How do we know that this... So, hold on. There's a couple of other categories of law that are understood to be given at Sinai. Moral is one of them. Ceremonial is another. Judicial is another. Now, I don't know what to say about judicial. Stephen can teach us. But ceremonial, everybody knows, except the Jews, has been fulfilled and done away with in Jesus Christ. There is no more need for a special temple in Jerusalem. The true temple has come. There is no more need for a sacrifice for sin. The true sacrifice has come. There is no more need for a Levitical priesthood. The true great high priest has come. And he's fulfilled all that part of his law. And It has been put into the grave. There's no more need for it. It is an insult to God for us if we were to go back to blood sacrifices, if we were to kill bulls here and call this an altar, that would be to violate the gospel and the revelation of God's Son. So the ceremonial law has been done away. 
And if the Sabbath is in any way a part of that ceremonial law, we should be done with it. We should not have anything to do with it. Just as we wouldn't have anything to do with a blood sacrifice. Having Jesus made himself a sacrifice for us. Is it, though, part of the ceremonial law? Many have tried to argue in very sophisticated ways that it is substantially. If I don't know that anybody would... Has anybody come out and just said it's totally ceremonial? I don't know. Probably they wouldn't. But that many have argued that it is fundamentally or substantially a ceremonial law, or mostly ceremony, as it functioned in Israel, the Sabbath. Honest. I'm glad you're looking at me quizzically. <laughs> That's how we should think of it. Why? Why should we be astonished to hear that? Well, because of all that God has done to show that these ten laws belong together and are unique. First of all, these are the only laws of out of all the law given at Sinai that God spoke audibly with his voice in the hearing of all the people from the mountain. Every other ordinance and law and statute the people received from Moses, the mediator of that covenant. And the reason is because they could not stand to hear God's voice anymore. They were so frightened. And they pleaded with Moses to ask God to speak to him and have him speak to them. These are the only laws, these ten, that God wrote with his own hand. The other laws Moses wrote down for us. These are the only laws that were put on stone tablets. The rest would have been written on some kind of parchment, I guess. These are the only laws that were put in the most sacred, holy object in the nation of Israel, the Ark of the Covenant, which was the symbol of God's own presence, his himself, exhibited in their midst. And so in putting these Ten Commandments inside the ark, God is telling us this is him. And they, they are a unit. I don't see how we can pull one of them out and say it doesn't belong there. It's, it's part of this other type of law. It, it doesn't have any real relevance there anymore. It did for a time, but all the other laws, they continue on, those other nine, but not this one. I don't think that can be said, in all fairness, to the facts. Now, some have argued also that Jesus came along and he reiterated all those, the other nine commandments than the, than the fourth commandment. And he restated them, and he established them again under the gospel, under, under the kingdom of God. Except for the Sabbath commandment, which he went around violating all the time and relaxing its rules and regulations by what he did. You know, he, he, can you believe what Jesus did on the Sabbath? Can you believe he healed somebody? Can you believe that he took some grain in his hand and wiggled it between his fingers. You know what they call that? Harvesting. 
Jesus is not changing God's law, his law. He is restoring it to its proper use and meaning. All around the Sabbath at that time had piled up all these pharisaical laws. The Sabbath was the the, the law they were most proud of keeping and made a big show of keeping it and put all these little barriers in the way of ever possibly thinking of breaking it. And God never intended all those little barriers to exist and to be the new standard for his law. It was, they were violating and God's law. And they were oppressing people with it. And they were, there they were, oppressing Jesus with it. God never intended in say, telling us to set aside our work, to say you should never heal somebody if you have the ability to on the Sabbath. It was part of the Pharisaical law, I understand, to say that physicians should not practice their art, Adam, on the Sabbath, that that is a violation of God's prohibition of work. Do they know God? Would God ever want his creatures to suffer on his day because it's his day? No, he gave the day for us as a blessing. We have to completely reorient our minds to God and his commands and our understanding of his purposes. We take a negative view of them. We take a stingy view of God. God put this day, what does Jesus say? The Sabbath was made for man. It's a day especially to go around healing if you have the power to heal. Jesus is restoring the true meaning of the Sabbath by saying mercy is good on this day. It's especially good on this day. Set aside your work so you can be all the more merciful on this day. Unless your work is mercy, and then Adam and Corey Knowles can work because we need policemen keeping us safe. It's one of the sad realities of our world. We need Corey out on the streets on Sunday. I wish he didn't have to. We miss him when he can't be at small group. But is he violating God's commands? Not according to Jesus. Is Adam, if he has to go into the hospital, violating God's command? Not according to Jesus. Now the question is, are you violating God's command if you do your homework? (laughs) Coming next week. We're going to end. Let me just quickly point out one thing that is important and I did include in the first service, and I think you need to hear it. Another reason why we can't pull out the fourth commandment from the, from the Ten Commandments is this, and, and say that it's part of the ceremonial law which is done away with. When God institutes the feasts and the weekly, the, the annual and weekly celebrations for his people in Leviticus 23. He, he, he calls them, number one, holy convocations. What does that mean? Well, have you been to a convocation at your school? 
It's an assembly. It's the Sabbath in, in Israel is not this sit on your sofa and don't lift, don't move a finger, don't eat warm food thing. It's a day for getting together and for being taught and, but, and for fellowshipping with the holy God. That's what the day is for. And to do that as a unit, as a body. And it's in all your dwellings, is what it says also. It's a, it's a holy convocation, number one, in all your dwellings. Meaning, in your local place, in, in your locale, in your hometown, in your village. That's where the Sabbath is instituted. And then he launches, he sort of starts the list over again. He says, again, now these are the holy convocations which I call and I appoint for Israel. And then he goes through the Passover, the Day of Atonement, and so on. All of which are wrapped up in the temple. And everything wrapped up in the temple is everything that Jesus has fulfilled and has done away. The Sabbath is clearly distinguished from all of those things as it's instituted in Israel. It's separated out. It does not go with the rest. And it continues. Now I will give you that there is something ceremonial about the Sabbath. Because if you've been listening to all this and you know about Sabbath doctrine and have read the arguments, then you know you have a trump card in your pocket. And you've been waiting for the opportunity to play it. Now's the time to play it. And we're going to leave this as a kind of cliffhanger, (laughs) this trump card, as the setup for next week. The trump card is, yeah, 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 this is all great. It's all great. It's true. I accept it. God rested on the day. It's an order of creation. He blessed it and he sanctified it. But which day, pastor, did he bless and sanctify Which day did he bless and sanctify? The seventh day. Is this the seventh day? It is not the seventh day. So your trump card is, I've just invalidated your whole argument. Right? Boom, as they say. (laughs) Well, it's not boom. It's not boom. There is a very good and profitable, and I think you will find a pleasing an easy explanation for this. Why God would move or change the day from the seventh to the first or for the, from the seventh to the eighth. There's indications and prophecies that this was coming. This, the ceremony of circumcision happened on what day? The eighth day. And there's a whole bunch of things like that in the Old Testament which symbolize New creation, regeneration, new creation. That's the setup for next week, an explanation for, first of all, why there's a change of day and why that's no violation of the Sabbath command and no invalidation of it, rather. And then hopefully a whole bunch of applications because we need to know how we can keep this day holy, what God actually requires of us. How on earth we're to live in this chaotic, anti-Sabbatarian day 
and keep ourselves unstained and unspotted from the world. I'll leave you with this thought from Isaiah. Everybody agrees that the prophet Isaiah, as he moves along, increasingly is talking about the coming days of the Messiah. And I think round about chapter 40, he's like moving into New Covenant Sabbath, or not Sabbath, New Covenant Jesus territory, okay? And towards the end of that, chapter 58, he says this. God says this through him. The Lord... Here it is. If because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and honor it, desisting from your own ways, from seeking your own pleasure and speaking your own word, if you will do this, listen, then you will take delight in the Lord. How grumpy he is. How stingy. How beneficial to you is it to take delight in the Lord? And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. And I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would help us to be open to you and your teaching and your instruction, that you would guide us into all truth, that you would help us to know what it is to keep your Sabbath holy, help us to know how to apply it, what you mean by it, how we can profit by it most, how we can honor you and magnify your name in this world by keeping it. Would you teach us and instruct us, Lord? We're ignorant without you. We ask that you would help us to understand and have faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.